So this is the last in the message series about the ancient Israelite year of Jubilee. Every 50 years um, on the Day of Atonement, the Israelites would blow the ram's horn and announce the Day of Jubilee. And David has uh, a couple of those uh, shofars or jubils that are used on that day of atonement. He's going to pass those around. You heard him play it for the call of worship today during the prelude. And you can take a look at those and just kind of see what they are. There are actually two different kinds. Yeah, you can hold them. Um, I wouldn't blow it if I were you. Yeah. <laughs> But um, there are different kinds of horns that are available, and they come in different preferences. The very first preference would be for the one that's coming down uh, that, uh, that Ryan is holding over here right now. And it's actually a curved ram's horn from a ram, just like you would imagine. Um, second preference would be uh, a curved uh, horn from another type of sheep, or from third preference would be a curved horn from any other kind of animal. And that's what Bobby's got back there. That is actually from a kudu, which is a wild animal, kind of like a, a deer, but it's what they have over in Palestine. And um, so they could use that as well. And that's also what is pictured in the slide on the screen. That David was saying that's a lesser kudu. If, has a number has to do with a number of twists that is in the horn. If it has a couple of more twists, it would be a greater kudu. And that there's pictured on the screen both a ram and a kudu. So the ram on the left would be the preferred animal, but with their horn. But they could also use the kudu horn. And I think that's the one that we most often think of because man, those things are just so long and impressive, aren't they? They were very visually striking. Interestingly enough. One animal that they could not use or were not supposed to use as a horn was a cow horn. Uh, for whatever reason, they didn't use it. And somebody asked me a week or so ago, could you use an antler from like a deer? You can't use an antler from a deer because they're not hollow. They're solid on the inside. So those would not work. But the ram's horn, the kudu, and several other horns are, are, uh, are usable because they're hollow on the inside. Now, when they would blow that shofar or jubel or horn, um, it would announce that this was the year of Jubilee. And at the year of Jubilee, slaves were freed, debts were forgiven, land was restored to the original owner. And for that entire year, no agricultural work was to be done. The fields were to rest. The workers of the fields were to rest. The animals were to rest. It was a great year of Jubilee. <clears throat> now I want to read to you, how is it that they could have a year off? Well, the Leviticus instructions in chapter 25 tell us. Reading in verses 18 through 22, it says, If you want to live securely in the land, follow my decrees and obey my regulations. Then the land will yield large crops and you will eat your fill and live securely in it. But you might ask, what will we eat during the seventh year since we are not allowed to plant or harvest crops that year? Be assured that I will send my blessings for you in the sixth year. So the land will produce crops large enough for three years. 
When you plant your fields on the eighth year, you will still be eating from the crop on the sixth year. In fact, you will still be eating from that large crop when the new crop is harvested in the ninth year. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, what most people don't understand or really wrap their mind around is that the ancient Israel were a, was a very, very special people. This was an opportunity for a nation to be God's chosen nation on earth. They were to be God's royal priesthood on earth to represent God to the whole world. As such, they would enjoy many special benefits that other nations did not, did not have. And this allowed Israelites the freedom to concentrate on showing God to the whole world. So as they had God's blessing, it wasn't just for them to enjoy blessings. Certainly they got to enjoy blessings, but it gave them a freedom that other peoples didn't necessarily have. Freedom to have the time to glorify God's name and to share God's love with people all over the world. One such blessing was to have an entire year off every seventh year. And this was huge, especially living in a time when they all survived in agricultural economies. So Leviticus chapter 25 verse 18 answers the obvious question. How in the world can people survive without farming for an entire year? So I'll pull up a timeline on the slide to kind of visually help you to see this. A normal harvest, they would have normal harvest uh, for five years. Can we get the slide up on the screen there? So they would have a normal harvest for five years. Normal harvest. But in the sixth year, you'd have a tremendous harvest that would come in. And this food would be enough to feed them in the sixth year, but then it would also be enough to put away and store it in. I don't know if they had canning and stuff like that back then, but they certainly had a way to put stuff in barns and dry things out and save it and it would last. And then on the seventh year, since they would not be farming, there would be no working, no harvesting, but they could still eat on the food from the sixth year. And then on the eighth year, understand that when you get to the eighth year, you still aren't bringing in any harvest because you got to plant that food and you got to wait for it to mature, which is going to take a certain amount of time. But God's saying, I'm going to bless you so much in the sixth year that, that even through that eighth year, you're going to have food to eat all the way till the ninth year. You'll still have food left over from the sixth year on the ninth year. So we're talking about a tremendous harvest that God promised on the sixth year. And this is how the Israelites could live that way. They could, they could only do it though by trusting in their Lord. The whole concept of Israel was based on faith in Yahweh, their God. He is the God who called Abraham to leave his homeland in Ur, to leave behind everything he knew and to go to some promised land that he had never heard of and never seen before, but he trusted God enough to do it. God is the God who delivered the Hebrew slaves from Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world at the time. How in the world could a bunch of slaves gain freedom from the superpower of their world? 
God is the God who provided manna from heaven and water of life in the desert as the Israelites left Egypt and wandered through the desert. People ask the question, how could they live for, without farming for a whole year? How in the world did they live for 40 years in a desert? They weren't farming in the desert, but God was giving them manna. He was giving them water. He was giving them quail and they survived. This is the God who conquered the Canaanites for the Israelites. Remember that God fought for them. If you look at the battle plans that the Israelites had when they went into the land of Canaan, they're ridiculous. And the whole point is to show that they weren't winning the fight. God was winning it. Take one example. Jericho, a fortress city with big, massive walls around it. God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to march around the city for seven days. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times. And when it's all over, he didn't say, pull out your cannons, pull out your catapults. He didn't say anything about that. He said, pull out your horns. We're looking at these trumpets that y'all just passed around. That's what they had. That was their battle implement. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times and then blow your horns at the city. And the walls came crumbling down. Who did that? Was it the trumpets? No, it wasn't some magical force. It was the supernatural power of the God who created the universe fighting for the Israelites. What was required of the Israelites for all of this to happen was faith. They had to trust God and they had to obey. It took a lot of faith to do all of those things, especially standing outside some city walls while people are standing there with their bows and arrows looking out at you and all you have is a horn to blow at them. But they trusted and they obeyed. Faith and obedience was what God required as they took possession and lived in the promised land. They had to trust God to provide enough food to live on as they, even as they took one day off of each week and one year off every seven years. And then they celebrated a jubilee every 50th year. It took faith. Unfortunately, biblical scholars and historians say that most evidence shows the ancient Israelites never really fully followed the Sabbath cycle. Maybe they did in the very beginning, but very soon after that, there's no way, no archaeological evidence, no written record that shows that they actually obeyed these teachings about the Sabbath. One of the main sins of which biblical prophets accused the Israelites was not observing the Sabbath. You know, they were working on Sunday, or working on their Sabbath, which is Saturday. And the prophets were constantly saying, you are not following this. And it wasn't about some law that they were violating. It really came back to trusting in God. To take a day off every week meant that they had to trust God. And there was always that nagging feeling in the back of your mind saying, yep, you've got so much to do. How many of you ever felt that? I just got so much to do, got so much to do, but I can't do it because I got to go to church or I got to do this or I got to do that. Well, people have been feeling that for thousands of years. And one of the main things the prophets scolded the Israelites for is not keeping the Sabbath. And they only occasionally took the seventh year off 
There's very little evidence that they ever really fulfilled the stipulations of the Jubilee. They didn't take the Jubilee off from work. They found ways to work around the law so that they didn't really have to set their slaves free. They didn't really have to give uh, release people from their debts. They didn't really have to give back the land to the original owners. You know how that is, right? You know how it is. Like, it's, well, it says this, but what about this? And what about you start looking for those loopholes? And that's what the Israelites did. And I can understand it. So you're telling me I got to take a whole year off and not tend my crops in my field? Well, maybe God didn't mean that. Maybe, but what about this? And what about that? And that's the way people do. And some scholars, biblical scholars, religious scholars, point out that the 70 years that the Jewish captives spent in Babylon after the fall of Jerusalem, they had to spend 70 years in captivity in order to make up for all the Sabbath years that they skipped. Hmm. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 20 to 21, it says this. While they were in captivity, the land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate till the 70 years were fulfilled, just as the prophet had said. So you think about that. That tells you a lot of things. It tells you that, you know, you can, you can look for loopholes and you can try to find a way around God's way, but at the end of the day, it's going to come back. But it tells you something else important too. God didn't just care about the people having rest. He wanted the land. To have rest. God cares about the land. He knows that the land needs some rain. He's going to send some rain, even if it means you got to get a little wet on Sunday morning coming into church. He's going to take care of his land. And he said, this land that you haven't obeyed me, it's going to rest. You haven't obeyed me, but it's going to get its reward. And I'm going to give it 70 years of rest. That's what people do, right? We don't fully trust God. We're disobedient. When we don't fully trust God, we try to work things out ourselves. We do it our own way. We try to justify our disobedience. And we do what seems right in our own eyes. At first glance, it seems reasonable. It seems like it's not that outlandish. It's not it's just normal behavior. We're just being prudent. We're only being fair, right? And doing what makes sense. Sin so often seems to make sense when we look at it from our selfish human perspective. That's what happened at the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. God put Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. He said, you can eat all of the different fruits. You can eat everything in this garden. Just don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will die. Satan though told Adam and Eve in Genesis three verses four through five, he said, you won't die if you eat that fruit. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And in verses six and seven, it says, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted 
wisdom, the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit. She ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it too. And thus sin entered the world. And we've been trying to do it our own way ever since. And look where it's gotten us. We have a broken creation with all kinds of pollution, climate problems. We have a broken humanity where we don't care for one another. We don't take care of the people that work for us. We don't give our employers an honest day's wage for an honest, an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. We've been fighting wars with each other. You know, the latest one is the war in Ukraine. Well, people have been fighting wars for thousands of years since before written records. People have been killing each other in order to gain. We're stressed and our lives are a mess and we're slaves to our own brokenness and our own sin. And you would think that God would just give up on us, but he doesn't. God still loves us. And that's why John 3.16 is so famous. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so Christ came to save us. He left the glory of heaven to come to our broken world. He didn't come in the glory that he deserved. Instead, he was born as a humble child to poor parents. He lived as one of us, ordinary people. He was like us in every way. He got hungry. He got thirsty. His heart would break. He saw people that he cared about get sick and die. He was like us in every way except he was without sin. Because he trusted God. And he obeyed God perfectly. And thus Jesus fulfilled God's law perfectly. And he has the right to be the one who calls us to repent of our sin. To be the trumpet that says that this is the day of the Lord's atonement. Turn to God. Trust him. Be forgiven. Be created new. Be restored to a right relationship. And obey him. And Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And if we trust him, then we are no longer guilty. We have eternal life in him. And we are called to be his people. All of the things that were given, promised to the people of Israel, become the things that are promised to those who are his people in Christ. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 2 says about us who follow Christ. You are chosen people. You are royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Christians who trust in Jesus as Lord 
are now Israel. We are God's chosen people. We are the captive Hebrew slaves who have been set free. But our freedom is not just from an Egyptian slave master or some earthly power. Our freedom is a freedom from the power of darkness and sin that is enforced by Satan. Galatians 5, 1 says, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. Don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. You have to choose freedom over slavery every day. You see, whatever you choose to trust in becomes your master. And whenever you choose to trust in your own way rather than God's way, you are choosing slavery to sin. Think over your life. How has it gone for you? Think about how it has been whenever you have rejected God's way and chosen your own path. It may have felt good initially, but then it led to trouble, to stress, to weariness, to pain, to broken relationships, hurt feelings. Soon you were enslaved and it felt awful. And the only way out is through Christ. To repent and seek forgiveness through Christ. And so that's how we're going to close the service today. Through repentance. Confession. And receiving Christ's forgiveness that he offers us today. I invite you to stand as you are able. And you will find on the screen the words of our confession of sin. Would you stand as we read this together. And then we will have a time of silent prayer reflection. Lord, we confess our day-to-day -day failure to be truly human. Lord, we confess to you. Lord, we confess that we often fail to love with all we have and are. Often because we do not fully understand what loving means. Often because we are afraid of risking ourselves. Lord, we confess to you. Lord, we cut ourselves off from each other and we erect barriers of division. Lord, we confess to you. Lord, we confess that by silence and ill-considered word, Lord, we confess that by selfishness and lack of sympathy, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Help us listen to your word of forgiveness. For we are very deaf. Come fill this moment and free us from sin. Take a moment for silent prayer. Lord, hear our prayers. 
in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Amen.